the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome, folks, once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Now, we get on the air each weekend because of the engineering skills of Alan Dempsey. He's a master uh, with all that goes on in the engineering room. And, of course, uh, the producer of the show is Andrew Herdliska. And in this first segment, he has lined up Winfield Bevins to join us. He's the director of church planning at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. And his new book is out. It's called Marks of a Movement. Welcome, Winfield. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great today. It's good to be here with you. Marks of a Movement, what the church today can learn from the Wesleyan Revival. Winfield, what was the Wesleyan Revival, and why is it important today? Well, most of us uh, probably would associate that with um, the First Great Awakening um, that swept through England um, and Europe and across North America. Many people might be aware of a George Whitfield. Um, John Wesley and George Whitfield were really kind of uh, kind of the catalyst for for that as it kind of swept through the United States and thousands of people came to faith as a result of this movement. Mm-hmm. And um, the uniqueness of Wesley as opposed to Whitfield, Whitfield was just a big crusade preacher, whereas Wesley actually um, developed discipleship structures to help people grow in their faith after they made a, uh, a conversion experience or kind of came to faith, if you will. And so literally thousands um, in his generations and within the next generation, millions of people were swept up into this movement um, around the world. And so thus, that's where I refer to it as a Westline revival. Well, <clears throat> let's plow into the meat of your book. Chapter one is simply called Understanding Movements. Uh, explain that to us. Yes. Yeah, so... Kind of one of the underlying premises of the book is Christianity at its very heart is a movement. Uh, many people think of Christianity as a as an institution, and in some ways it is. Um, you have kind of denominational institution structures. I work at, for instance, a, a large seminary, which is a Christian institution. But at its very core, in essence, Christianity is a movement that started with Jesus, his early followers, um, and movements are kind of uh, sociological, you know, movements of people where they gather around an idea, lives are changed, people commit to a cause, and it kind of becomes viral. Uh, if we think of the social rights movement or, you know, different, um, you know, secular movements, for instance. And so one of the things that this chapter looks at is kind of how 
um, Christianity has spread from the very beginning um, throughout the world, from just a handful of followers with Jesus, uh, all throughout uh, the Middle East and Africa, um, into Europe, and then from everywhere to everywhere, essentially, uh, is this movemental dynamic. And um, so it sets up the rest of the book to kind of look at how could the church in North America and in the Western world regain um, uh, movemental, kind of a movemental dynamic for today. And then you move to this topic, change lives. Explain that one. Yeah, essentially, um, in movements, lives are changed. People, as they experience change, um, you know, in in Christian terms, we're talking about people who have had a life-changing encounter with Christ. And we see every major Christian movement often starts with a couple people who have experienced kind of either a first-time um, conversion or maybe they've uh, had a recommitment or some sort of fresh revelation or kind of a renewal in their life that sparks change, that they share that with others. And um, so change lives in movements, you know, as they grow thousands of people's lives are impacted by the message of that movement. And so, for instance, the Wesleyan Revival, um, which the Methodist movement today grew out of, with, you know, the Wesleyan movement around the world right now has about 80 million members that started with this handful of um, followers, if you will. John Wesley, his brother Charles, uh, George Whitfield were at Oxford as, you know, college students, and they were praying and uh, they all kind of had this, you know, kind of experience this uh, with God that changed their lives. And that life-changing experience, the born-again experience, was really kind of the fuel to the fire um, that spread this revival. Um, so really, you can't manufacture it. And I think that's where the book starts with this chapter is um, it begins with God. You know, there's this life-changing experience that people have. You can't manufacture it. You can't fake it. Uh, and it's it's absolutely essential to spark a movement. Um, we have to encounter it first. So as church leaders or Christians, like, oftentimes we need fresh, uh, you know, fresh life-changing encounter with God uh, to renew our faith and our hope. And, um, and so that's kind of the, the theme of the chapters. Uh, um, movements often begin when lives are changed and transformed. Now, <clears throat> let's get to this topic, a contagious faith. I want to hear about that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like it, it begins with that, that life-changing experience, and as people experience that, they begin to share that with others. Um, you know, it's... Uh, I think, in, you know, in terms of my own life, I remember I've got I've got three kids. I remember we had our first girl, and this was back in the days when, remember the old, uh, you know, people keep pictures in their wallets and the plastic thing, and you can mm-hmm. flip it out, and you know, this is before iPhones and you know all of our pictures being online now. And I just remember having this contagious love for my newborn daughter, and I would just I'd be on a plane and I'd be you know, halfway through a flight, and I'm sharing those photos with other strangers. You know, there was this excitement. And so in movements, and especially this, this Wesleyan movement, is 
uh, as people's lives were changed, they there was this genuine, contagious um, faith sharing that happened. Um, it wasn't manufactured. It wasn't worked up. They didn't necessarily have to go to a class for it. But there was just this encouragement to just share the story of what God had done in their lives. And it just became contagious. And um, in many ways, it, it became viral. Um, there's a book that was a, a, a nationwide bestseller called Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell a few mm-hmm. years ago. And it was a secular book. And he looks at how ideas spread and become contagious. And he talks about, um, it's kind of, again, it's a, kind of a secular look, but one of the case studies that he looks at in the book was the Methodist movement. Where he talks about this viral, contagious nature of how it just spreads from one person to another. And that's one of those dynamics of when you look at Christianity, of how it's grown and grows in various for instance, right now throughout Asia, uh, Latin America, Africa, you have this rapid ex- uh, expansion of Christianity. It happens as people um, share their faith with others, and it just becomes a contagious movement. Let's get to this topic, number four, simply called the Holy Spirit. Uh, what can you tell us about that, Winfield? Yeah, again, uh, Christianity at its core um, yes, we have different institutions. I, I'm a part of a denomination. I have a tradition. Um, but Christianity is this movement. And as we see in the Bible, the book of Acts, we see you know 120 gather in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes upon this you know this kind of ragtag group of 120 people. Uh, the Messiah, you know, they're they're kind of broken, and 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 the Holy Spirit comes, and they're changed, and they just go out in the power of the Spirit. And you see um, throughout history, movements of Christianity thrive and grow um, as they lean into and are open to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And this chapter is not about like crazy charismania or anything like that. This is it's really advocating a genuine openness and um, leaning into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so I look at that in the um, this early Wesleyan revival as people's lives are changed, um, the Spirit, you know, they're just surrendering their lives to God and, and just following the leading of the Spirit. And, and God does miraculous things. I think that's the reminder for us today is... Um, you know, in all of our technology and media, we need to regain that sense of God is the God of the miraculous. He's... Winfield Bevins is our guest from Wilmore, Kentucky. More with Winfield talking about his book, Marks of a Movement. <clears throat> You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Winfield Bevins is with us from Wilmore, Kentucky, talking about his book, Marks of a Movement. The fifth area that you uh, write about, Winfield, the discipleship systems. Uh, What is that all about? Yeah, so you have uh, George Whitfield, who really was the best preacher of the day. He was the Billy Graham of the day, and... Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of people were converted under his ministry in, in England, Scotland, Ireland, North America. And, um, you know, Wesley began to see that a, a lot of these people 
fell away from the faith. And, and so um, one of the things that Wesley really emphasized were discipleship systems and structures to help uh, disciple people. And we, many of us think of are part of churches that have small groups. Well, in some ways, Wesley um, was the inventor of the small group. Um, he put people who came to faith in certain groups. There were certain groups that were designed for those that were more mature and were growing in their faith more rapidly. So small groups for him would, would, would be called the class meeting. And uh, it was to be a Methodist wasn't to be a member of a church on Sunday, but it was actually to be a part of a class meeting. And uh, they even had little class meeting tickets. And uh, kind of the more intense groups were called band meetings. Um, these were groups of three to five people um, that were more intentional uh, with their discipleship. It was more face-to-face type discipleship. And so that was really one of the key geniuses of the movement. Let's move uh, to your next subject, uh, next topic, apostolic leadership. Uh, what is that all about? Yeah, it's essentially, um, this was a lay movement. It wasn't about <clears throat> ordained clergy or professional clergy, clericalism. It was really about releasing you know, the, the body of Christ. So in the Westland Revival, everyone really played a significant role. And so apostolic essentially means apostolos. It means the sent, being sent by God. And so kind of he it was recovering this early Christian understanding that everybody um, had a significant role to play in, in, in the work of God. So that's what I mean by apostolic in that chapter. It looks at just uh, everyone having a role um, in the mission and leadership of the church, not just a few. Now... Winfield, organic multiplication. Uh, sounds yeah. a little complicated, uh, is it? No, it's, uh, you, know, we, we, you know, we think in terms of gardening or, you know, organic being natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so healthy systems, natural, as we look at nature, um, for examples, uh, we, you know, if, if you... Uh, fight, you know, weeds in your garden or your lawn, you, you see how like dandelions, like you let one or two stay and they can, you know, there could be thousands, you know, within one season and they spread organically. There's this organic multiplication. And when we look at Christian movements, um, they spread, they grow. Um, there's that one, there's the contagious nature, but they, there, there's a multiplication factor Disciples making disciples, churches starting new churches, and so you, literally you have within a generation um, this movement literally spread from a handful in Wesley's time to thousands, and then the second generation as it comes into the United States, uh, it spreads into literally millions within um, less than 100 years. Mm. Now, Winfield, I want you to explain... Movements can be messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you know, kind of one of the one of the things to remind ourselves is, you know, life is messy. Um, being a Christian doesn't mean you know everything's perfect, and especially in movements, you have you know you've got some 
wild people that emerge. You know, there's sometimes splits. Um, there's challenges, uh, just like life. And so in movements, uh, it's not advocating kind of a perfect do these 10 steps and then everything's going to be great. Um, but it's uh, it's understanding that, you know, if we want to see a movement in our day, um, there's probably going to be some messiness. So you have within this early Wesleyan revival, you have different splits and factions um, that happen. Wesley himself had a bad marriage. Um, there was no, uh, you know, infidelity or moral infidelity. He just traveled on horseback thousands of miles and preached, you know, thousands of sermons, and he just wasn't in the home much. <laughs> and so that probably would put a strain on any marriage. Um, and, and so I'll look at some of those dynamics uh, that to kind of take into consideration. Um, but I do end the chapter in that uh, I look at some encouraging things, for instance, that are happening in the Church of England. Um, here's this kind of ancient tradition that has had movements spread up within it, and there's movement happening right now in Church of England through church planting and renewal. So I'll look at that as an example of how movements can renew themselves. Now, uh, the eighth chapter, the new mission frontier. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is that? Yeah, the new mission frontier is um, really trying to encourage Christians and churches to see that the world has changed. And, um, you know, 21st century, there's a lot of new emerging trends and dynamics that are different than even 20, 30 years ago. Um, And so in many ways you have rise of, you know, globalization, multiculturalism, uh, our neighborhoods have changed in many parts of the United States. Uh, many cities um, just look drastically differently. It's a technological age. Um, there, you know, there's all of these dynamics, that, cultural dynamics that have changed. And the church today doesn't need to compromise the faith or the message, but we have to learn to engage the world in which we live in now. And so that's really what that bit is about, is kind of laying out a landscape of this This is what the Wesleyan Revival, here's how they address their context, and it's encouraging the Church not to just mimic what happened back then in um, the late 1700s, but how do we engage the world where we are today? What is going on at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, Winfield? Uh, what kind of students are there? What are they learning? Where, yeah, that's, where are they headed? Great question. Um, Asbury Seminary is, uh, <clears throat> we are close to 100 years old, um, and Asbury was birthed out of this Westland Revival, really. And Asbury is one of the largest seminaries in the U.S., in the world. Uh, we have students from 140 denominations, 40 different nationalities, and um, one of the things that, uh, one of the most exciting things that we're doing is uh, I lead the church planning initiative here, and we're working literally around the world um, and across the United States with equipping people to start new communities of faith. Um, they're going to, you know, reach, helping people reach their world for Christ. And 
so it's it's a very exciting time um, to be at Asbury. Um, we're we're serving multiple denominations, and we're really equipping people to engage the new mission field, um, which is again increasingly secular, multicultural, global, and we're trying to equip students for ministry here today in the real world. How do you teach church planting? How do you go about that? Yeah, we teach people, kind of our, our approach is um, helping people think like missionaries, because again, the world has changed. Uh, we teach them intercultural studies, we teach them how to learn their context, uh, you know, how do, how do you engage your neighbors, you know, how do you engage your world um, with the message of Christ. So the students learn a lot of case studies. We actually have immersion learnings. Um, one of the courses I'm finishing up right now is an urban church planning course where students are exposed to different types and models of church planting. Uh, they hear stories. Um, you know, they get to interact and see firsthand uh, what church planning looks like in different contexts. And so... Yeah, it's kind of what I would call kind of a mixed mode of, you know, there's classroom teaching, but there's online learning, um, there's interaction with real practitioners, we're giving them fresh examples of what's happening uh, in the area of church planning. Winfield, I want you to go back and talk to us some more about one of your chapters, and that is the Holy Spirit. How do we become more attuned to the Holy Spirit? How do we become more sensitive to what the Holy Spirit may be communicating to us? I want you to uh, teach us more about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's good. We, you know, we're in the midst of the Advent season, uh, preparing for Christmas and. You know, Advent is a is a season to slow down, to watch, and to wait. And um, you know, we we see in the Book of Acts. I think the best way to see is, um, you know, we're we're told in the Scriptures that to go to wait. You know, to, and I will send you the Holy Spirit. And I, th- I think one of the reasons why many people don't walk in the power of the Spirit and haven't encountered. Um, Spirit in deep, profound ways is we we're just too busy. We don't know what it means to wait, to watch, to pray. And I think the first step is to kind of just stop and push away from all of our busyness, turn off our screens, our phones, and put those away, and really just go wait and ask. And I think the scriptures tell us to ask, you know, ask your Heavenly Father, you know, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it kind of begins there, um, having a hunger, uh, wanting to um, have a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, many Christians are dry, and they've uh, maybe they've never had um, an encounter with the Spirit. And um, it's as simple as asking, but it's um, we have to wait. You know, there's this, you know, the, I think the King James, the old language says, you know, to tarry until you be endued with power from on high. And it means to go wait, to really press in and to ask God. And it's not just you ask God and then all of a sudden this, you're going to get struck with a lightning bolt. We have to actually wait before the Lord um, to get alone, to get in private. Um, I remember the uh, reading... Charles Finney's autobiography, you know, he was a 
famous preacher in the Second Great Awakening, mid-1800s, and he was a lawyer, and he just went out into the woods and just cried out to God, and um, he had this Holy Spirit encounter where he described it as waves of liquid love running over him. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I would just encourage everyone who is, wants a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit to go to pray, find a quiet place, carve out time to really be with God and just ask um, the Lord for a fresh encounter with the Spirit. And um, all of these movements throughout history, movement leaders, um, we, you know, literally, they all share these experiences. They use different language, but they have these fresh encounters with God. And essentially, that's the Holy Spirit coming upon them and filling them, refreshing them, and sending them out anew. What does it take, Winfield, to have another movement like that now? Is that practical or possible? Yeah, I think with God, all things are possible. Um, and it's happening around us. You know, it's uh, in many ways, God's moving in amazing ways and uh, Hispanic Latino congregations that a lot of us don't see. Uh, it's happening around the world, um, and I, I just call me foolish enough to believe that God can do it again in the church in the West and here in North America, and I think it begins with that hunger, wanting to see God move freshly. Um, I, I have an encouragement. You know, the Wesley was a part of the Church of England, which is very traditional and high church, and um, Movements can start anywhere, and I think that's the encouraging thing with this book is if God did it then, he can do it again now. My guest has been Winfield Bevins. His book, Marks of a Movement, good read, important read. Uh, We've got more right after this. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Stay with us. Winfield Bevins, our guest in that first segment from Wilmore, Kentucky, talking about his book, Marks of a Movement. Uh, Dr. Linda Mintel joins us. She's the host of the Dr. Linda Mintel Show. Her book is out, Living Beyond Pain. It's an important book a holistic approach to managing pain and get your life back. Linda, welcome. Uh, How are you doing? It's so good to talk to you again, Pat. We've talked before, and I love what you're doing, and I'm so glad that you're bringing attention to the problem of chronic pain. We've got 100 million people in the United States who are suffering with chronic pain, and because of the opioid crisis, uh, this has been brought more to the forefront And we've got to do some things to help those people um, that are suffering uh, get their life back, just like you said. Linda is in Lynchburg, Virginia, and her book, Living Beyond Pain. Uh, Linda, you break your book down into three parts. But uh, before we get into that, I want you to talk about the introduction of your book. It's simply called Pain, a Part of Our Lives. Uh, What are you writing there? 
Well, I wrote the book, first of all, with a physician. So we co-authored this book because we both work with pain patients and we um, are Mm -hmm. trying to, again, respond to the opioid crisis and the number of people that are on narcotics and dealing with chronic pain and trying to help all that, that, all those people. But we wanted to just start with an introduction about pain in that pain is a part of our life. It is something that happens to us maybe acutely where we have an injury or we have a surgery or we have something happen. But then also there are so many people that that pain doesn't go away and it continues to be a part of their life. And it can be so devastating to so many people. So we wanted to start the book by saying, look, we understand that your pain is real. When someone is in chronic pain, they are not making this up. It is not in their head. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about that, Pat. It is kind of in their head in terms of it's in their brain, and we have to talk about how the brain gets rewired with chronic pain. But people are not making this up. They really do hurt. They're experiencing a lot of loss a lot of loss of function, the quality of their life is affected. And so we wanted to help people understand that pain is also something that affects so many parts of your life, your emotions, your thoughts, your relationships, and you you feel like you're losing control in a lot of areas of those lives. So we wanted to move people from hurting to hope and help them understand that pain is holistic, but there is a lot you can do to turn down the volume on that pain and make your life so much more improved, even if you're still struggling with some of the pain. Part one of your book is called Understanding Pain. Uh, Know your pain and when pain doesn't stop and stress and pain. Can, uh, Can you dig into that part for us, Understanding Pain, Linda? Yeah, I think this is so important because there is a difference between people who have acute pain and people that are struggling with chronic pain from an anatomy and a physiological perspective. So when someone has chronic pain, their central nervous system has been wound up, so to speak. They're highly sensitized to that pain, and they actually have neuroplastic uh, changes in their uh, spinal cord, in their brain, and this is causing them then to feel pain, sometimes when there's nothing to really trigger the pain, and at other times just to be way more sensitive to that pain. So pain can persist even when the the impetus for that pain is gone. And so we wanted to make sure that people understand that this is a physiological condition. And so all the work that we're talking about in the book has two goals. It's really to calm down that nervous system so that you're not so sensitized to pain and then deal with the brain, which is where we feel pain. We actually feel pain in our brain, not in our toe or in our finger or any other part of the body. Pain is a perception that's in the brain. And so there's a lot of mind-body treatments that work to calm down the nervous system, distract the brain away from the pain and normalize those pain pathways so that it isn't like a misfiring. We, we, we talk about pain like an alarm system. You know, it's really good for us to, to have an alarm system in our body when we hurt ourselves because we need to know that we've been injured and we need to attend to it. But with people in chronic pain, Pat, what happens is that that alarm system is misfiring all the time. It's kind of like a false alarm. If you had an alarm on your house and suddenly it goes off in the middle of the night and you look around and you go, wait, nobody broke in, nothing's wrong, why did my alarm go off? 
That's what happens with people in chronic pain. And that's why we spend so much time trying to help people uh, get that pain system back into a better place of operating and turn down the sensitivity to pain. Uh, Dr. Linda Mintel is with her. She and James Cribbs have written the book Living Beyond Pain. Linda, tell us about the opioid epidemic and chronic pain. Yeah, so this is unfortunately one of the fallouts of the opioid epidemic. Most people are aware of it. It's been very problematic. I've been involved on the state level with medical schools in Virginia, uh, helping prescribers get a better handle on prescribing, regulating prescribing better, you know, working on state guidelines, and then also monitoring pain patients so that we're giving them, making sure that people aren't, you know, getting too many uh, prescriptions and that those prescriptions prescriptions are handled right. Now, because of all of that, one of the fallouts of that has been that people that are in chronic pain who don't use opioids to get high, they use them to manage their pain, are now being much more restricted with those um, opioids. And the truth is that when we really look at the data, and and Dr. Cribbs and I spent a lot of time looking at uh, research studies, what works, what doesn't work. The truth is that opioids really are not that effective for chronic pain. They end up creating a tolerance, which just means that you need more and more to get the same effect. If you stop taking the opioid, then you have these withdrawal symptoms that are very unpleasant. And about 9% of people who take them for chronic pain for the appropriate reasons end up being addicted to them. And we really don't know, Pat, who's going to end up being addictive. We know that every person has a a certain type of genetic uh, disposition, and some people are more predisposed to uh, a substance abuse than others. The genetic component is about 40 to anywhere from 40 to 60 percent, so that's a really high predisposition. And then you add experience and life factors in there. There's about a 10 percent of the population that is going to go into Uh, from use to misuse of an opioid. So we have to be very concerned about those patients as well. Part one of this book that uh, Linda has co-authored, Understanding Pain. Linda, part two is called Tools for Management. Uh, What are you telling us here? So I I love this story, um, and it it really helps us understand how we need to deal with chronic pain. If you're a, a person in pain right now listening to this or you know somebody who is in pain, one of the issues, there was this, there was this uh, coach that was hired from, by the Tour de France. Um, I don't know if you know, but the British team didn't win that race for like 100 years. And they're a little bit like a Cubs fan. I'm a Cubs fan, Pat. And, mm-hmm. you know, we went 108 years before we won <laughs> the World Series. So I understand the pain of the British team. They were like 100 years into the Tour de France and going, okay, we need to start figuring out how to win this race. So they hired a coach who came from the business world, and he applied this concept called marginal gains. And what he did is he looked at every little thing that goes into running the race, uh, the Tour de France. So he looked at handlebar positions. He looked at seats. He looked at the color of the bike. They painted their practice area white so that they they could look and see if there's any dirt on the bike. He looked at brakes. He looked at every little aspect of riding in that race. And he told the team, we're going to change every aspect 1%. And by the end of five years, 
I believe we're going to win the Tour de France. And actually, they changed all those dynamics 1%, and in three years, they won the Tour de France, and they kept on winning. So we took that concept, and we said, you know, this is very similar to the race of trying to deal with chronic pain. If you take all these tools that we're talking about in the book, and you improve them, maybe 1%, or do two or three of those, you are going to end up improving your life, improving your functioning and the quality of your life and improving all of those symptoms, turning down the volume on chronic pain and making your life so much better. So that was the idea. And then we, we went into, in this section, we started talking about all the different things that you can do to turn down the volume on pain. Change your structure, change your pain. Change your yeah. beliefs, change your pain. Change your thoughts, change your pain. Change your lifestyle, change your pain. And on and on it goes. What does all that mean? Yeah. What's all that mean, Linda? So, so we know what makes chronic pain worse. So we know things like if you actually have the belief, I'll never get better, I'm going to be disabled, life is never going to work for me. If you start thinking like that, then your pain actually increases and gets worse. If your thoughts are constantly negative, I can't do this, I can't get out of bed, I'm not going to be worth anything in my life, all of those negative thoughts, and particularly with pain patients, uh, they do something called catastrophizing. It's, it's a catastrophe. You know, now my life is over, now I can't play with my grandkids, now I can't get out of bed. All these negative thoughts actually work against you and turn up the volume on pain. And the same is true with negative emotions. The brain where pain is, it has the same real estate with your emotions and your memory. So if you are depressed, your pain gets worse. If you have pain and get depressed, it gets worse. If you're depressed before you get pain, it gets worse. So depression and pain make pain worse. Fear, anticipating that you're going to have a problem. So anticipatory fear where you're thinking, I can't do that because it's just going to hurt too much. That type of uh, thinking and feeling, the fear and the anxiety around that will make your pain go go badly. And so as we help people manage their thoughts, make them more positive, think about what you can do, think about the small marginal gains that you can make to actually get to a goal, and people do that very successfully when they have chronic pain, when they work with us, then you also manage your emotions along the way. And then you have to manage your behavior. So you have to do things like make yourself go to an event even though you don't feel like it. Now, you might have to leave because you start to feel so bad, but at least you got out so that all of your life isn't focused around the pain. One of the biggest things we teach our pain patients is that if you can distract the brain away from the pain, you're going to feel better. And so there's lots of things you can do that way. You can manage your stress. You can do something called biofeedback where you, where you learn to control physiologically your pain through your thoughts. For some people, hypnosis works. Mindfulness exercises work. A lot of distraction techniques work. And then we have the whole area of lifestyle. We know that exercise helps pain tremendously. People don't like to do it because they think, oh, it's going to hurt. But if you do it with someone that you're supervised by and you do it slowly and gradually, movement is really a key to improving your pain. Looking at your diet, do you eat inflammatory foods? And so in the book, we looked at all the diets and we actually chose the one that the Cleveland Clinic 
recommends, and that's the Mediterranean diet, which is very anti-inflammatory. So we tell people, try that. If you're overweight, getting some weight off of your joints can do a lot for chronic pain. If you smoke, here's another reason to quit smoking. Smokers have more pain receptors in their body, which means that they have more pain. Mm. And so if you stop smoking, your receptors will actually get altered again and things will get a little bit better and it will really help your pain. And the same is true with alcohol. Alcohol just numbs pain. You don't feel it at the time, but it's not doing anything to help the pain. And in fact, it interferes with sleep. And sleep is one of the things that we all need for physical health and mental health because it sort of reboots the body. So there are a number of things that you can do. And I want people to think like the Tour de France. If I do a number of these things and I make little tweaks, I get up and I start moving, I look at my diet, maybe I stop, you know, smoking. That's a big thing, not a little thing. Maybe I start, you know, taking my thoughts captive and looking at how I'm thinking. Maybe I get some help for this depression that I'm feeling. All of those types of things can really make pain so much better. Dr. Linda Mintel is with us. Living Beyond Pain is the book that she's helped to put together. <clears throat> I just want to uh, say a quick word here about Major League Baseball and our effort to bring it here to Central Florida. Please visit the website, orlandodreamers.com, and just tell us if you think it's a good idea, if you believe that it would work. And then there's also a little segment there to say, yeah, I'd be interested in season tickets if this came about. OrlandoDreamers.com. More with Linda Mintel right after these messages on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Linda Mintel joins us from Lynchburg, Virginia. We're talking about her book, Living Beyond Pain. So, Linda, uh, part one, understanding pain. Part two, tools for pain management. We've arrived at part three, hope and resilience. Develop a positive mindset. Create a personal pain plan. Make meaning out of pain and suffering. Uh, tell us about hope and resilience. What, what are you saying to us here? Well, we can change the way we think about pain by being much more positive about our life and not creating a lot of negative associations with our pain. Um, so it's very important when people are trying to be resilient in anything that they do that they don't get so focused on the moment of what hurts but more focused on what their their plan is for their life and how they want to engage with life. And so that requires taking your brain and focusing it on things that are positive, things that are, are, you know, things in your life that are good. Even though you're in pain, you may have a great spouse or you may have wonderful children or you may have um, strong finances or you may be able to say that spiritually I feel really strong in my life. The key here is not to let pain take charge of your life. It's going to test your character. But you have to say to yourself, I'm not going to let it win. And today, I will manage that pain. And one of the ways that we do this, Pat, and it's not just for pain, it's for so many issues related to mental health, is when we practice gratitude. 
Now we're obviously not grat- we're not grat- you know we're not feeling grateful for pain because we don't, we don't like to feel bad, but we do look at the other parts of our life, like I just said, and we start to say, all right, if I wake up today, rather than focusing on my pain this morning, maybe I can think of three things in my life and I can write them down to start my day. So maybe I have my morning coffee and I think of three things that yesterday I had kindness from a friend. Um, You know, today I woke up and I actually feel very hopeful. And you're going to note these and you're going to pay attention. Again, pain is a perception in the brain. If you tell the brain to focus on things that are positive, the brain will distract away from that pain and actually help you feel better. And when we practice gratitude, it has been shown to improve health, to boost our immune system, to lower our blood pressure, to improve our sleep. It's really a matter of just counting your blessings and really trying to get that focused. And then because we talked a little bit about managing those negative emotions that may come in, one of the ways you also develop a positive mindset is you learn to forgive. And you you start to move your life along. I'm not going to let offense. I'm not going to let people who have maybe treated me poorly, um, maybe not been fair with me in life, and certainly there's nothing fair about having pain, but I'm not going to let those things get me stuck. And I'm actually going to move forward and move on. And then I think one of the really important areas in anybody's life is you have to make some meaning out of suffering. You know, we don't like to suffer. We don't like to feel pain. We don't like to have disease. But sometimes what happens is in the middle of our pain, we get our priorities straight. We begin to focus on the things that really are more important and maybe have eternal value in our life, things that we want to um, really have as our legacy maybe when we're gone. And so I, I love what Viktor Frankl, um, most, most people know who he, he was. He was a psychologist and a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. And he, he reminds us through his life and the things that he said that we have the freedom to choose our attitude in the middle of difficulty. So obviously this was someone who couldn't stop the horrible things that were happening to him. But he reminds us that we can choose our attitude and we can choose to focus on things that are important, that are positive, and that will bring meaning to our life. And so in the middle of suffering, you have to start thinking, how can I grow from this? How can I have compassion for other people? How can I be more empathetic to the people around me? And, you know, what can I do with the pain that I've had? I mean, you see it, and you're you're very involved in the sports world. You see it all the time. I was just watching, a, I think it was a throwback the other night on ESPN on um, Valvano's life and what he was saying at the end when he was dying of cancer. And he's established a foundation that has been highly effective in helping so many people. There's somebody who took his pain, took his disease, and made a meaningful contribution and is helping so many other people that came after him. I think that's really important when we're dealing with pain and, and problems in our life. There's an epilogue to your book, and it simply says, never give up. Uh, can you expand and tell us more about that epilogue? Well, it's a, it's a great story, and um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the story uh, that, that we put at the end of the book. It's a former uh, NFL uh, football player. And uh, but it's a, it's from a long time ago, so not a lot of people know about uh, Mario. He was a he was a football player uh, that was actually started his life 
um, as an immigrant, Italian immigrant, came to this country. He was um, injured as a child. He was playing on the streets, and he got he got hit with a uh, a bunch of um, acid in a barrel. It just fell on top of him, and he was really injured. And they didn't think that he would ever, ever have much of a life. He was suffered third-degree burns on 80% of his body, and they thought it wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to have much of his life. But his father, who was extremely resilient, refused to give up on him and accept such a hopeless prognosis. So what happened is over time, he got his son strong, he got recruited by Notre Dame, he ended up playing um, college ball, and then he got, re- he got recruited into the Army at World War II. He went in and he was part of the Bataan Peninsula, on the Philippine island of Luzon, where he got captured and was tortured. I mean, it's just a story of resilience after resilience. Came home, um, eventually did play one game, I believe it was with the, I think it was the Green Bay Packers. I can't remember exactly which team it was. But he ended up having such a meaningful life despite all these multiple challenges. And the story really is he refused to give up, he refused to accept hopelessness. He was a very humble man. He has a story of courage, humility, perseverance, overcoming, and hope. And the idea is we wanted to really encourage people at the end of the book. Look, here's someone who suffered physical pain, emotional pain, um, torture, and yet he never gave up, and his life was extremely meaningful. So hopefully that will inspire a few people to do the hard work and not give up. Linda, what do you want people uh, to take from this book that you co-authored? We, we really want people who are in pain to know that don't get hopeless with this. Sometimes it feels that way when you're sitting on. We believe you. We want people to know we believe you. We know that your pain is real. But we also want you to know that there are so many ways that you can impact your own pain, that you can take control of this, and you can do things that are really going to help your pain. And then we wanted to put the evidence-based treatments in there, Pat, so that people could look through the book and go, hmm, that's not something that evidence, you know, that science has proven to be effective. Oh, this is. This is something I could try, and I could look for a pain specialist who might help me in this way. So we want to do those three sections of the book. We want people to better understand their pain, how it works from a physiological point of view so they understand what they're doing that's helping or hurting their pain. We want to give a lot of treatments and alternatives and things that people can do rather than simply taking an opioid, which we don't believe is truly effective anyway long term. And then we wanted to encourage people with hope and healing and to take your life and not be not be thinking in a hopeless way, but be inspired and use the things that you have been through to help other people and serve other people. What's next for you, Linda? Well, I've been doing a lot, actually, with this. I've been going around the state. I've been talking nationally because the the opioid crisis, people are so aware of it. And I I like what Governor Mike Huckabee said when he was giving me the endorsement. He said, you know, the, the fire truck has been sounding the alarm. But now you and Dr. Cribbs are coming along and you're trying to put out the fire. <laughs> I, I thought, yeah, that's what we're doing now for the next uh, a year. We're really focusing on getting out there, getting the public to understand. We've had a lot of community forums where we've talked about understanding what opioids do to people, how we can attack the problem. And then we're really committed to trying to help this 
100 million people in the country deal with chronic pain in a way that is not just medication-oriented. You know, I went to a conference, Pat, at, with the Mayo Clinic sponsored, and it was so telling that they did a survey, and what they found was 94% of the patients at the that they surveyed said, if we could do something other than taking an opioid, we would do that. We just need to know what that is. Dr. Linda Mintel has been our guest. Living Beyond Pain, we got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Winfield Bevins was with us in that first segment uh, talking about his book, Marks of a Movement. And then Dr. Linda Mintel joined us from Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, talking about her book, Living Beyond Pain. I want to direct you folks to a website that we've set up. We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. And if you will go to orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, you'll see some interesting information there and uh, an opportunity uh, to respond in two ways. Number one, yes, I think it's a good idea. Uh, Let's keep pushing on it. And secondly, at some point, uh, I would have an interest in uh, season tickets if all this comes about. OrlandoDreamers.com. Well, folks, we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.